Welcome to season four of the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness, with your host, India Lorik Wilmot. Thank you for joining us. Today, we are in conversation with Colette Phillips. Colette is a diversity, equity, and inclusion pioneer, public relations and marketing maven, thought leader, philanthropist, and an Uber connector. She is the president and CEO of Colette Phillips Communications Incorporated and the founder of Get Connected. A savvy, enterprising risk taker, Colette has pioneered inclusion and multicultural marketing strategies throughout the New England area and is highly respected for her expertise and ability to create cross-cultural business and social relationships and networks. Her communications firm provides strategic public relations and tactical support for stakeholder engagement, including but not limited to brand activation, reputation, and crisis management, often for Fortune 500 companies, governmental agencies, and nonprofits. Colette's game-changing insights and ability to help people bridge differences and connect more meaningfully has often resulted in solving challenging problems with positive social impact outcomes. A recipient of numerous awards, Colette has been recognized for her personal and professional works on diversity, equity, and social justice, including a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Boston Business Journal, an award from the American Jewish Committee, and was named to Boston. Boston Magazine's list of Boston's 100 most influential people, just to name a few. Also, the author of 21 Steps for Women to Win, a compact inspirational guide for women entrepreneurs and professional women, as well as the creator and publisher of Kaleidoscope, Boston's first and only multicultural resource directory. I am sure all of us listening today are eager to gain insight from the gems of knowledge Colette will share with us today. So welcome, Colette. I am delighted to be here, India. Thanks for having me as a fellow Caribbean woman. I am delighted to be with you. Right about now. Act one, call to adventure. This is a breakdown. So Colette, as a PR and marketing strategist, as well as a DEI pioneer, your field affords you the opportunity to listen to stories people tell and help them more effectively reframe these stories for social change. So what I do know, and you've alluded to already, you were born and raised on the Caribbean island of Antigua. You then left at the age of 17 or so to attend both undergrad and graduate school at Emerson College, which is in Boston, Massachusetts, pursuing degrees in communications and marketing. What or who inspired you to pursue a career in communications, PR, and marketing? When I was a teenager, I was fascinated by radio journalism. I did not grow up, I don't know what it was like in Grenada, but for the first, I would say, 10 or so years of my life, we did not have a television station in Antigua. And my father, when, when I was about 11 or so, he actually got a television with the big antenna outside of the house. And the only stations we could get were stations in the Virgin Islands. So television did not start 
in Antigua till about 1968. The TV station used to be on from six in the evening until 10 o'clock at night. So you only got four hours of mostly American programming. I was fascinated by radio and broadcasting, and I used to love to listen to the stories that you could hear on the radio because you had to use your imagination. I really discovered how powerful storytelling could be. Mm -hmm. And my sort of passion for PR came in my senior year of college when I interned with the American Cancer Society work with them on the first ever fashion show that used all models who had had breast cancer. A couple of the models had double mastectomies. I realized that we were able to get 400 women to show up. And remember, this was in the days of pre-social media. So you could only really get these people there through public service announcements on radio, on television, and through stories that were in the press. That in itself told me the power of communications, the power of the media, and how you can leverage that to tell a story that would engage and interest people. It's a form of social campaigning and storytelling all at the same time. Exactly. And even back then, I would have to say the aspect of engaging with women of color was important for me to be able to make sure that we were not just focusing our PR to just the suburban publications, but that we were reaching out to the Bay State Banner, which was around at that time. And El Mundo, which was the first Latino newspaper. And even back then, I was very conscious of the need for inclusion. So because of the wealth and breadth of experience that you've had, particularly being in the game for, as you're saying now, almost 40 years. Right. Right. If you can, for our audience, please reflect on what it has been like to be a Black woman in PR, in marketing, particularly around striking it out on your own. I think about this because I also know that one of your first jobs was, I believe, being press secretary for the PM of of Antigua. Which is very different than coming here. Yes. Yes. So, So reflect on what that's like. Well, first of all, I have to say, India, I have always sort of been the first, the first this, the first that. I was the first ever woman in the Eastern English speaking Caribbean to be the press secretary to a prime minister. At the time, I was just barely 21, going on 22. I had just graduated from college. I was the deputy press secretary. And six months into the job, the press secretary had a heart attack and had to change his job. I had to step into those shoes. I just felt I didn't have a choice to because I was successor being the deputy press secretary. For me, that was a very positive experience. But then coming back to the U.S., to do my master's. I come from a very entrepreneurial family. I knew then that I always wanted to start my own business. And what sort of advice did you receive from folks around you about breaking out on your own? 
I was advised by people who I would say they were telling me this because they were trying to discourage me. They were telling me not to start a business in Boston as a Black person because they knew how frustrating it would be. I love a challenge. When people say no to me, my response to no is next opportunity. I don't take no for an answer because I always feel that wherever there is a will, there is a way, as my mother and father instilled in me. And it is very true in that Boston is not necessarily the easiest city for people of color to navigate. There's a long history of that. How did this history inform the ways in which you chose to navigate some of these spaces? I have gone through and encountered just all the different kinds of experiences that Black and brown people and people of color BIPOC individuals have experienced in their lifetime. But I have chosen to not be bitter, but to be better. You know, my sister used to say to me, there is one letter between bitter and better. So you can either put the I and be a bitter, angry person, or you can choose to be better by meeting the challenge, meeting the moment, and not allowing other people's either perception, behavior, or attitude to influence your response. I feel that in some ways, everything that every Black entrepreneur have gone through, the lack of access to capital, the lack of access to opportunities have existed. Okay, so can you put that into context for some of our listeners who are outside of the Boston area and may not be familiar? I think Boston in particular is a city where there is so much talent and particularly talent of color. And yet people say to me, well, why did you stay? And I said, well, if I left, I would be giving up. And I felt I needed to stay because I wanted to be the change that I want to see in the world. You think about the challenge and then you say, what can I do to ensure that the next generation of Colette, the next generation of India, you know, don't have to walk this path, but we can make it easier for them. Or somebody can look at a Colette and say, look, she went through the fire. She walked through the fire, but look at what happened at the end of this. She came out victorious. I'm going to peel back the onion a bit and go back to when you were talking about your experience yes. being the deputy press secretary. Paint the picture for us. You were already in Boston, so you had a slice of what it was like, what you would encounter, <laughs> right? How did you even get the job as deputy press secretary? To give people an understanding that there are certain things racially that are pretty homogeneous in Antigua compared to Boston. Yes. And then you left there to come to back. come back here. <laughs> right? Here's what happened when I graduated and came back to Antigua. Emerson College at the time, because they are constantly in a mode for recruiting new students, because I was from the Caribbean, I was not a scholarship student. I was a student where my 
family paid for me to come to college. And they wanted to have more students like me, more foreign students whose family paid for their education. And so they sent press release to my hometown paper saying that, you know, I had graduated summa cum laude. I graduated second in my class. I had received an award from the American Cancer Society for the work that I had done with them as an intern and that my background was in communications and, you know, journalism. My dad knew the prime minister. The prime minister called my dad to congratulate him, said, oh, I read about your daughter. You must be very proud of her. What is she planning to do? Is she going to go into your business or is she in the market for a job? Because we want to encourage our young people to come work for the government. At the time, I had gone to another island, Dominica, for vacation. On my vacation, and my father called up his friends whom I was staying with and said, you have to get back here soon. I'm like, what? He's like, (laughs) the prime minister called me and they want to offer you a job. And I said, dad, look, if the job is really that important, they will hold it till I get back. And you were second in your class. So you're like, I earned this vacation. Exactly. So I did come back to Antigua. I went in for for an interview. And once you got the job, what did you end up doing? I worked in television also because at the time, the TV and radio stations were owned by the government. So because of my journalism background, I was the I did anchoring and I read the news on TV and radio. And then I had a weekly show that was called Let's Talk. And we covered issues that were timely. And I got the opportunity to interview different people, be another prime minister or somebody who was visiting the island about tourism. That to me gave me a lot of opportunities to tell stories. And did you have the opportunity to do anything like an expose or documentary series? I did three different documentaries. One was on the water because Antigua was a drought-ridden island. They had a desalination plant and how they converted seawater into fresh water. So with all of that experience and the storytelling that you were engaged in, what was the thought process or what was the trigger that allowed you to decide, I need to come back to the United States? For all intents and purposes, you know, when you are in the island, you get to it, you graduate, you get to a certain age. Even though I was like my early 20s, I had a fiance and in my head, I was going to be married and have kids and live in Antigua happily ever after. Well, that didn't work out that way. My fiance and I sort of had a disagreement, parting of the ways. And I thought, you know what, I should really use this opportunity to go back and get my master's. And I thought I would come back and go to Boston University because I had done Emerson College and I reached out to one of my professors and he says, you're an Emerson grad. Emerson has a great graduate program. And he said to me, I promise you, if you decide to do your master's at Emerson, I would love to have you as a graduate assistant. 
Now, that's an awesome deal because that would then come with a stipend and tuition remission as well. So he sort of made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Plus, I got to be under his tutelage. He had a consulting business with another professor. So I was able to go out on those consulting ventures and learn from that. And look at that. It's been over 40 years. I like to say that fate, F-A-T-E, brought me to Boston, but faith, F-A-I-T-H, kept me in Boston. Because I think that to be in a city that is not always very welcoming to people who look like you takes an, an enormous amount of faith. And I grew up steeped in, in faith. And I believe that in some ways, when you live with purpose, you collide with destiny. My destiny was to be here in Boston. Wow, that is a powerful, powerful sentiment. I believe it more and more now. And I say this without any sense of ego. I look back at the body of work that I've been able to accomplish and the things that I've been able to do in Boston. And it might have been easier if I'd in Atlanta, in Washington, D.C., maybe even in New York City. But to be able to do the things that I've done in Boston, to me, has even greater meaning because I know how hard it was and it is to accomplish those things. And so for me, I feel like I have blazed a trail and created opportunities and open doors for, for others. And that really is what one's life, when you live your a life of a purposeful life. It's not about yourself. It's about how do I make a difference in the world? How do I create an environment where you are lifting other people up? And I get more pleasure out of doing that than anything else, because I feel like that's my purpose. That's my role. That's what I have been called to do. That's my ministry. Hey folks, enjoying this episode so far? Well, we'd love to hear from you. Reach out on IG at journeysb2b underscore podcast and share your comments about favorite guests or ideas for future episodes. Be sure to subscribe and like the show wherever you listen to podcasts. We're aiming for that five-star rating. Now back to the episode. the road. You are a great connector, and that's one of the themes that is pretty apparent throughout the bio that I shared with our listeners. And I imagine that is one hallmark of your legacy. And so to come back to your communications firm, for those who may be unaware, it also has several programmatic arms that really include building an ecosystem of resources and opportunities that enrich professional development and facilitate business and career opportunities and really help to forge positive cross-cultural relationships. And so you do this through a myriad of different arms, the Get Connected Market, the Network, the Fund, the Executive Search, the Job Fund. Also, you are a champion of DEI and have been tireless in amplifying 
women and people of color to be seen as an integral part and an integral talent for recruitment, especially when there's this default saying or thinking that people of color or BIPOC women are hard to find, right? Which is something that it's like, exactly. where are you looking? Because they're everywhere. But <laughs> that's that's a whole other point. Exactly. And, and this has been pretty key, especially for a city like Boston, as you've been saying, right? That it has this yes. reputation for being racist and unwelcoming, even in this 21st century. How does this work connect to your passion for social justice and diversity, equity, and inclusion. You talked a little bit about that as being part of your ministry, but how does this all pull together for you? The thing that I find about diversity, equity, and inclusion, particularly at this inflection time in our country, I think people think when you talk diversity and equity that it's all about the social good, and it is, but it's that's not what it's all about. One of the things that I truly believe makes this country a stronger, better, more prosperous is when you are leveraging the talent pool of everyone. When you have diversity at the center of what you are doing, you are going to get innovation. You're going to get new ways to solve a problem that you probably did not think about. You know, women and people of color bring a different lens to every situation that they're in. And what I say to people is one should never feel threatened. What you should feel is that when you are getting different ideas, you are taking an old idea and magnifying it, making it even better. And it doesn't mean that what you had was not good. I think of diversity as a salad. Each piece of vegetable or fruit is a standalone. The lettuce can be on its own. The tomato can be on its own. The carrots can be on their own. And on their own, they're fabulous. But if you take it, and chop it up and put it all together in a bowl. It is the most beautiful mosaic of colors that you can find. The taste, it makes for a better presentation because everybody is coming together. And for you, this is about the connection. There is an interconnectivity. And I think what um, some people in America tend to forget that even when Black people were not considered to be fully immersed in the American Constitution because we had to file an amendment to make us a fully accepted and part of this country, the founding fathers have as their slogan, e pluribus unum, out of many, we are one people. And that to me is what people tend to forget. In what ways do you think people forget? When people say to you and I, your husband, go back to where you came from. And I'm saying, you must be Native American. This is a country that is a country of immigrants. Everyone except for Native Americans came to this country from somewhere else. Some of us came in chains. Some of us came freely. Some of us were fleeing famine. Some of us were coming here for economic opportunity. And I think that a lot of people tend to forget that. The whole aspect of thinking of diversity as a competitive advantage in the world. And if you took Black, 
Latinx and Asians out of the American economy, our combined gross national product is greater than Sweden, Canada, and Mexico combined. I like to think of our whole economic impact as a domestic juggernaut that has not even been fully tapped. And so what's your thinking around tapping into this very specific consumer market? In order to serve a diverse consumer market, you need to have a diverse workforce because a diverse workforce is going to help you, one, avoid gaffes of saying inappropriate things and telling you how best to reach people who look like them. You know, you would not walk into China and try to sell a product with the same nuances and slogans and all of the habits of an American because you're in a new market. If you're going there, then you better have some Chinese people on your team. You better have people who understand the culture. It's just good manners to be respectful. I call it respect, civility, and inclusivity. When I think about all of the lists that you've put together to date that highlight different professionals of color, I think that really speaks to just this importance around showcasing the diversity that does exist and persist. Can you speak a little bit more about that particular aspect of your work? My body of work, why I put together the list that I put together over the years and continue to do so, is to spotlight, to elevate, to amplify, and to showcase the contributions that BIPOC individuals are making to the social, economic, cultural, political fabric of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And to take the excuse away from people who say, we can't find any qualified people. We don't know where to look. Well, look at my list of the most impactful Black women. Look at my list of the 25 most influential millennials. Look at my list of the 100 most influential people of of color in Boston. When you say you can't find anyone, you must be looking under a rock. And this is what I say to people. You cannot tell me that you can't find people. We're everywhere. I think about these shifts that we've encountered even socially within the last two and a half years and what perhaps you've observed in the field itself around the shifts and dynamics around these corporate and community strategies for DEI and social justice. Because I think in many ways, when we compare pre-pandemic, people had presumably a particular model like, okay, I'm I'm interested in DEI. Here's how I'm going to go about this. And then here we were, we were experiencing a global health pandemic and also a global pandemic around racial reckoning yes. and treatment, yes. right? And then we're stuck and we experienced uh, together what it was like to see the death of George Floyd, to see yes. statues all around the world and monuments crashing down because people are saying it's enough, bringing yes. attention to inequalities that many populations experience. And that you two have also penned different op-eds, including those yes. that are in the Boston Globe and talking about this. Where do you see the future of this ecosystem now that you've 
building and that you're encouraging other stakeholders, both individual and corporate and community to really say, okay, here's how we can continue to move these issues forward. Well, I think what has happened, and you have beautifully, you know, shaped it, that I say that the pandemic basically was like an MRI. It was able to expose the disparities that existed in healthcare in this country, that black and brown people and indigenous people did not have the kind of access to care, even though, take, for example, a city like Boston, where we are the epicenter of healthcare and life sciences, and yet in the Black community, which is three miles away from sort of one of the wealthiest parts of Boston, Beacon Hill and Back Bay, the life expectancy between a white person who lives in Back Bay or Beacon Hill was 33 years greater than a Black person living in Roxbury. So you have to think about what is it that created that? And then with the death of George Floyd, what it did was showcase in the minds of people who thought that maybe Black people in particular were exaggerating when we talk about racism and anti-Blackness. And I think when they saw Derek Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck and to watch a man's the life being literally snuffed out of him by someone who took an oath to protect and serve. I think it was too much for everybody. And I think it opened up a lot of eyes. But what does your crystal ball tell you now? We are about almost three years out from the murder of George Floyd. What do you think all of this means if we were to reflect and project a future here? I will tell you, my crystal ball says, while I was heartened to see many whites out marching and putting on their lawns, Black Lives Matter, I feel like we need to have more than just that statement. The question I ask of my white friends and allies is, okay, I am with you that you have acknowledged Black Lives Matter. Now, what have you done? Or what are you going to do? Or what are you doing in this moment to ensure that we don't go back? We don't slide back into the pre-pandemic mode. I have actually heard white people say, oh, I am tired. And I said, try being black all your life. If you, you have just done this for a few months, try walking in my skin. So let me ask you this. Because I think it's important to cite to a couple of things that you're talking about. One being that, in effect, people of color, black and brown people specifically, are exhausted, right? We're tired of this black tax that we've had to continuously have to pay. And then you have our white allies who cannot really understand our plight because they don't have the same kind of experience. They can't live in our skin. So who should be or where should the mantle be taken up to really address these social issues? I do not have a lot of faith in political leaders, even though they control the policies. I have much more faith in corporate leaders because I think they have the smarts, they have the ability, they are not burdened and buried in bureaucracy. 
a CEO with the right commitment, courage, and cultural intelligence can make a decision about how he changes the culture and the organizational inclusion within his company or her company. It is not rocket science. Okay, so you can call me a cynic, but for me, I think capitalism and the mighty dollar rules a lot and informs and influences CEOs in making these sorts of decisions. So do these individuals really exist Or are they just unicorns? Do you have any examples? I can tell you that there is a a couple of CEOs in this country who happen to be white, who have basically decided that on their watch, as long as they are CEOs, they are going to work to mirror and model the kind of environment and company they want to create and the kind of America that they want to live in and they want their children to grow up in. I have great hope that what I say to my white allies, friends, and to the CEOs that I know that care about this is what I call the three L's, the pillars of leadership. You listen to the people who are most impacted, you learn from their lived experience, and then you lead from behind. You allow them to tell you how you can help. And if you are a person of color, you just lead. But there's also a certain level of accountability that must happen as well across the board and not just in these corporate or workplaces and spaces, but just in general society. We cannot move the dial on diversity, equity, and inclusion until we Americans, and particularly white America, holds up a mirror to itself and say, this is who we are. We have two systems, one that serves people who look a certain way and one that serves people who don't look that way. Even in this post-pandemic reconstruction time that we live in, I mean, people are very much fatigued by DEI efforts and initiatives in many ways. I think the timeliness where they were captive audiences because we were all relegated to work from home, that people were like, it was front and center. Like, how do we have people who won't revert back to the typical lip service or just to do just enough to say that they're doing, but then to really embark upon social change that's needed We have legislation now where we can't even talk about issues of civil rights in our schools. So it's hard to say, let's celebrate Martin Luther King holiday if no one was really being taught Martin Luther King and why we have a holiday to begin with. And yet we don't want to hold up a mirror to say this is how and why DEI initiatives are really important. And so when I think about your legacy that you want to leave behind, what would you want people to look back to say, okay, it's not perfect in this country. We have a lot of issues, right? (laughs) We have a lot of issues. Here's how we move this needle. Like I've already begun to see some of the results of the legacy. The last two editions of Boston Magazine's 100 Most Influential People had almost a third of that list were spotlighted people of color and many of whom, about 30 of whom, were on Get Connected's list over the years. This year's 
50 most influential, 50 most powerful Bostonians by the Boston Business Journal had about half of that list were people that were spotlighted by Get Connected. So in some ways, the legacy has already begun. When people look at a list or they look for people who are on Boston Magazine's list and they say, oh, this person came from the Get Connected list. Or when I see that we have the first Black Attorney General of Massachusetts, Andrea Campbell, a Black woman who had never run for statewide office, but was able to beat a candidate that outspent her tremendously. That to me says, number one, that we have made progress. That's part of the chipping away. And you're right. How do we not let companies revert back to the pre-pandemic DE&I, where it becomes a box check. We have to have people in our community that are willing to make others accountable. The role of the citizen activists, while a lot of times corporations and government don't like them because They are the people who are poking the bear and saying, wait a minute, you said you were going to do this, but you didn't do it. Because these are the people who are holding those who are able to make change accountable. And I love what you just said. How do we celebrate Martin Luther King's day? How do we celebrate Juneteenth when we're saying that we can't teach elements of the history because young white kids might be too fragile. Well, young German kids are not fragile to learn about the Holocaust. The reason why we teach kids about atrocities is so that we don't repeat history. I just started a group in Texas with Dr. Angela Valenzuela. We were compadres and kindred spirits. She had this idea after meeting me and me talking about Get Connected, starting a black and brown dialogue that we can take across the country because there is power in numbers. We believe that black and brown people need to not be fighting each other or competing with each other, but really collaborating with each other, coming together, creating a beloved community and figuring out how we can use our collective and individual power and numbers to really create the meaningful change that you mentioned so that we are not standing here 40 years from now when I may not be around and your children are are in their 50s, that they can have a life that is may not be a perfect union, but can be as perfect as we can make it. So that to me is my legacy. Yes, I get it. To be able to move the needle. Move the needle in the direction where people can begin to see people of color in leadership. Being able to see all these young people who I have mentored, nurtured, and continue to be an advisor, and and they have mentored me too. 
So it's not just about amplifying names and putting them on lists and mentorship and being mentored and all sponsorship and so on, but it seems like part of the legacy is the hope and the promise that all of these different opportunities can yield for future generations. That to me is what gives me hope that we will see an Asian American, we'll see another black president, we'll see a woman president, that the will is there. And I feel like the next generation and the generation after that are going to be the ones that are gonna carry us through. Act three, where we land. This is the point in the show where I ask my guests to share any upcoming projects or innovations that they may have in the pipeline. So what's next for Get Connected? And in the process to please share with us, where can folks find you to learn more and to get involved? I would like to see Get Connected become a, a global model and a global network and be in other parts of the U.S. and the world. Because I think the premise on which Get Connected was born was really about breaking down barriers, bringing people together. People who come to Get Connected events, particularly the in-person events, feel like there is a warmth in the room. Everybody is there to make a connection and everybody's there because they believe in what Get Connected is trying to do. For the GK market, which I created in 2020 as a Black woman, entrepreneur, small business owner, I recognize that a lot of small businesses, particularly those who have brick and mortar spaces, but didn't have a website. And I'm thinking these are people who are dependent on people walking into their stores in Hyde Park, in Mattapan, in Nubian Square. How do these people move their goods? A very good question, especially one that we learned in COVID. What do they do? And so I approached a couple of people that I know and I said, look, here's what my vision is. I want to create a marketplace for free. I'm not charging people anything. It's like a mini Amazon. Whatever they sell on their sites, they keep the money. I haven't charged a dime, not a penny to anybody because I'm saying then there's not revenue coming in. How am I going to charge them? You know, and maybe at a later date, we might do a different model. But for now, we have five thousand people on that in the GK market. And I want to grow it so that it becomes a bifurcated site where corporations who want to do business with BIPOC companies can go there and find them. And people who are just consumers who I said, use the power of your purse. Don't just say Black Lives Matter. Don't just say, I am all for BIPOC and diversity and inclusion. Okay, if you are, let your pocketbook do the talking. Spend your money with the people who you say that you support. The GK Fund, so far we have given 10,000 grants to 11 companies. By the end of this year, I want to give 10,000 grants to five more companies so that we would have impacted 15 companies in a year. That's what's next. 
and working hopefully with the city of Boston to elevate and amplify small businesses who for too long have been excluded from the conversation. Small businesses are the economic engine of this country. The big companies are taking their stuff outside of America. Small businesses are hiring people from the neighborhoods, They're hiring their family members. I think the future, when we talk about closing the wealth gap, we need to invest in BIPOC entrepreneurs. Well, thank you for sharing all that you have going on with Get Connected. But I also know that you have just wrapped up writing a book. Can you tell us a little bit more about that too, please? I have just completed my book called The Includers, The Seven Traits of Culturally Savvy Anti-Racist Leaders. That's going to come out next year. That's very exciting. If folks want to learn more and get involved, can you share what your social media handle is and your website very quickly? They can forget connected. They can go to www.get connected with a k.com they can follow me on twitter colette phillips they can follow get connected which is underscore get connected so there you have it folks miss colette phillips thank you so much for joining us and sharing your journeys of belonging to blackness thank you the journey isn't over but this episode is To catch the latest, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram at journeysb2b underscore podcast. Thanks for listening.